Matthew 5. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew 5, verse 1 to verse 11. This is week number 8 for us where we are um, following the synoptic Jesus or Jesus of the synoptic gospel. Does anybody know what the word synoptic mean? Synoptic, what does it mean? Right, it, it refers to what gospels? It refers to the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we are just studying these three gospels together. We're going back and we are constructing the life of Christ historically from these three gospels. We're not studying John because John kind of has his own style, his own method. The way he described the life of Jesus is, is different a little bit than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke for the most part are very similar to each other in the way they documented the life and the teaching of Christ. So this is week number eight for us, where we are going back and studying the life of Christ. And believe it or not, now we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which is documented in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So three chapters in the book of Matthew. So we're going to read these 11, uh, 11 verses from Matthew 5. <clears throat> it says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be confronted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. This is key, because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, in the same manner, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen? Amen. The parallel passage to that first uh, part in the Sermon on the Mount is actually found in Luke chapter 6, verse 17 to verse 26. It's almost identical. I'm just going to read verse 24 to verse 26 because that's the part that Matthew did not really mention when he documented the Sermon in the Mount. So Luke 6, 24 to 26, but woe to you. So Matthew mentioned only the Beatitudes, but Luke had a couple of woes there. But woe to you when you're rich, for you are already received your comfort. Woe to you when you are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who, who, are, who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. It might be think about some pastors in America and everybody likes them. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated what? The false prophet. Amen. The part that Luke has, the, the multiple woes here that he has, is pretty much the opposite of the Beatitudes. So if you're if you're poor now, you're blessed. If you're rich now, then you are, you're, you're, you're in deep trouble. 
So pretty much once we cover what Matthew was teaching, the opposite will be exactly true about Luke, especially this woes part. Now, I was studying this part and this one commentator mentioned something that makes more sense to me, which I never even thought, thought about or knew before. When Matthew wrote his gospel, Matthew did not necessarily care per se about historically documenting the teaching and the life of Christ, especially when it came to the teaching of Christ. Matthew kind of like grouped the teachings of Christ together. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to find that there is five major blocks or five major parts where it seems like Matthew is collecting the teaching of Christ and he's putting them together. One of these is here, the Sermon in the Mount, on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So three chapters of pure teaching, one idea after the other. And then we move on, and we're going to see in chapter 10, Matthew collected the instructions that Jesus has given his disciples. In, in chapter 13, I think there is seven different parables, descriptions of the kingdom of God. And Matthew collected all of them together, put them together in chapter 13. And instructions about the life in the Christian community, chapter 18, again, collected all these teachings together. And then the end of times and what can happen then, Matthew collected all of these teachings together in chapter 23 to 25. So three chapters where Jesus is just teaching about the end of times and how things are going to look like at the end of time. We don't have to assume that the Sermon on the Mount is just one single teaching of Christ. It seems more like this is that the style of Matthew. Because this teaching that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount is actually scattered all over the book of Luke. And it's random as well in the book of Mark. So it's more likely than less likely. Again, we don't know. We weren't there. But it's more likely than less likely that the Sermon on the Mount is not just one sermon that Jesus preached at one setting, but rather it was a collective of different teaching that Jesus did and Matthew just put it together in these three chapters. Does that make sense to you guys? So what we're going to do is, because it seems like, more likely, it's a, a group of a collective teaching of Jesus, we're going to spend some time studying that because it's extremely important. When the Son of God came down from heaven, and this is the teaching he gave us, we need to really pay attention to that. Amen? So that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to focus on the Sermon on the Mount and the different teachings that Jesus has for us in the Sermon on the Mount. What we're going to study today from verse 1 to verse 11 in Matthew chapter 5 is pretty much the foundation of the righteous living, the Beatitudes. So this is not how you can be saved. It's not Jesus say, you have to be poor, you have to be um, meek in order for you to inherit eternal life. It's more like, if you're a Christian, this is the way you should conduct your life. Amen? So this is more the foundation of the righteous living. And in the book of Matthew, the first 11 verses, we see that there are eight blessings. Well, you can count more than eight, but actually verse 10, 11, and 12, kind of one block. There are not different thoughts or different ideas, but verse 10, 11, and 12, they're only one thought. So there are only eight blessings in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Eight, uh, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12 are just one block together. 
Now, let's look deeper into these eight blessings that Jesus has just pronounced to the way we should live our righteous life. The word blessed is, or blessed is the one. It's pretty much literally say, oh, the happiness of the person who's like that. This is what Jesus say. Oh, the happiness of the person who's poor. Oh, the happiness of the person who is hunger and thirst after that things of God. Amen? So that's simply what the word blessed means. The first one of these blessings, the first one of these beatitudes is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you go to Luke and see how Luke puts it down, Luke say, blessed are the poor. Doesn't necessarily say the poor in spirit. Matthew add the word in spirit to clarify what does this word poor mean. It means poor in the spirit. Amen? Obviously, Jesus in other places spoke about how hard is it for a, for a rich man or a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But this is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not saying... Oh, happy are you when you are materially poor. Whether you're materially poor or materially rich, this is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about somebody who is poor in his spirit, spiritually needy, not materialistically needy. You guys are with me? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And it is very interesting. The word poor that Jesus used here is literally the word bag. And the idea is that someone who is actually crouches and cowers, someone who's like, like that, somebody who's bent over, stretching out and literally in a bagging position. That's the exact same Greek word that Jesus was using here. Somebody who's he's broken from, the, from within so much so that he cannot help it, but even his body is taking that position of being a beggar, of being somebody who's begging for something. Amen? Now, Jesus said, if you are poor in spirit, if you are desperate, if you are needy in your spiritual walk with God, blessed are you, oh, happy are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, as a Christian, one of the hardest lessons as a, as a human race in general, as people in general, our major problem with God is that we are prideful yes. and we are arrogant. That's the problem. People don't want to come to know Jesus, don't want to be saved. You know why? Because they don't think they're too bad. I, I'm good. I can figure this out. I am not that desperate. I'm not that needy. And even as Christians, you know why? We don't pray as much as we should because we, don't, we are not desperate as much as we should. Because we don't think we need God as much as we do. We think that we can figure it out. And because we can figure it out, I don't need to pray as much because I got this. I can figure it out. I, I have my car. I have my job. I am, I'm well off. I don't need anything. Therefore, I don't need to be desperate. I don't need to be broken. And that's the problem. The problem with Christians in general, like, God, the only thing that holds God from moving in our lives is that we, when we are not desperate for him. But guess what? Jesus said, if you get to the point that you are desperate, 
desperate and you are needy in the spiritual realm, then blessed are you. All your happiness when you come to the point of total dependence on God. For in that time, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And if you go back, even in the Old Testament, one of the two amazing scriptures that I absolutely love in, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 15, it says this. This is what God said. Look, let, let God's will blow your mind away. Look at this, Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and the exalted one says. That's God, high and exalted one, right? He who lives, his name is holy i live in the high and holy place again the idea that god is so exalted he lives in the high and holy place but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in a spirit think about that god says i live in two these two extremes in the highest of all and in the lowest of all. I live in the highest place, but I also live with him who is contrite and broken in his spirit. Well, God, how about the middle? When, when you're not really so broken, you're okay. God doesn't stay there. He's either in the highest place or in the lowest place. Amen? And what does he do? To revive the spirit of the lowly. Thank you and appreciate it. Thanks. To revive the spirit of the lowly. It's the exact same thing that Jesus said that blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is the exact same idea from the book of Isaiah. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Amen. Yes. Isaiah 66 two. Has my hand made all these things? Obviously yes. And so they came to being declares the Lord, these are the ones I look on with favor. So think about this. God is saying, I am so mighty. My hands has made all these things. Yet here are the ones that I look on favor with or look on with favor. Who are these people, God? Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and, and who tremble at my word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Listen, when you're desperate, when you're desperate, God will show up. God answers prayer, but he most most likely to answer desperate prayer than just regular prayer. When you think like you're good enough, then God cannot do anything to you. But when you think you have nothing to offer God, that's when God shows up and do everything for you. Amen. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. If you're not there yet, I pray that you will pray with me today and say, break me, Lord, that I get to the point that I'm so desperate for you. Because unless we're desperate for God, God is not going to show up. Amen? God doesn't show up to help people who think that they don't need him. He shows up to help people who desperately need him. Amen? But number two, the second blessed, the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be confronted. Again, this is the same idea that Jesus just mentioned earlier. Those who are begging for God's help. Now he's talking about those who are spiritually broken to the point that they're crying out to God, showing their deepest regret for, the, for their own pride, their own sin, and they want God to come and show up and do mighty work for them. That's, these are the ones who mourn for their spiritual conditions. These are the ones, Jesus said, who will be confronted. And 
This idea that those who mourn will be confronted is actually taken from the book of Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 to 3. Remember, in the book of Isaiah chapter 61, that's when it's a prophecy about Christ and it says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me for he has anointed me to do what? To preach the good news to the, to the poor, those who are spiritually poor that we just spoke about, right? Preach the good news to the poor, proclaim recovery of sight to those who are blind and to set the captives free. And then it picks up from verse 2 to 3 and it says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And look what the Messiah does. And to comfort all who mourn. That is the beatitude here. Blessed those who are mourned because they will be comforted. And to comfort all who are who are mourning and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them the crown of beauty instead of the ashes. The oil of joy instead of what? Mourning. And the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Isn't that just awesome? If you're mourning today, if you are broken over a, a specific spiritual condition, or even if you are mourning and poor and over somebody else in your life, a friend, a family member, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, who doesn't know Jesus, and you cry out to God for them, Jesus said, all oh, the happiness of you who cry out to God, who mourn and weep before him because you're so desperate for him because the day will come when you will be confronted. When, when every need that you have that you desperately seek God for will be provided. Amen? Hallelujah. Number three, the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The word meek or gentle is used only by Matthew in the Synoptic Gospels. It's used three times here in uh, verse 5. And it's used in Matthew 11, 28 to 29, when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. I am gentle. It's the exact same Greek word that is used here in Matthew um, verse 5 of chapter 5, 5. And then in Matthew 21, 5, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you. How does he look like? Gentle, who's that king? Jesus, right? Gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fall of donkey. So Jesus said, look at this. Jesus was meek, was gentle in the way he dealt with other people. And Jesus said, I want you to be meek just as I am. The same kind of attitude that I have, the same way I treated people, the same way I lived my life, gentle and meek. I want you to conduct yourself in the same way. And blessed are you when you're meek, all oh, your happiness when you conduct yourself this way because you will inherit the earth. Amen? You will inherit the earth. If you go back to the book of Revelation, the last chapter, verse 21, we see that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. And that's where God will dwell with his people for all eternity. So inherit the earth here is a reference to the eternal status when God and his people will dwell in the new Jerusalem that we read about in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Amen? All right, so we talked about three beatitudes so far. Blessed are those who what? 
who are poor in the spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, in the Old Testament, we see an example for somebody who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, and that was King David, Psalm 61, 3. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Think about that. David is crying out to God and saying, God, I want to be in your presence. And that's for me far more important than food and far more important than water. I don't know about you. That's pretty hard for me to say that I'm so desperate for God's presence to the point that like we try to fast and sometimes it's just hard, man. Sometimes like when it's noon and you're hungry, you're hungry, right? You try to plow through it, you try to continue, you try to like fast and be disciplined, but sometimes I fail. Sometimes I'm just like, God, I can't, I'm just going to go eat and that's not good. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Psalm 107 verse 9. This is a promise from God that those who hunger and thirst will be filled as well. Psalm 107 verse 9. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul. And the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Thirsty and hungry. And God can satisfy that. And that's all associated with the coming of Christ. In Luke chapter 1 verse 53. When Jesus came, we read this. Jesus, because of his coming, he has filled, God has filled the hungry with good things. So Psalm 107 was quoted in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, in association with the coming of Christ. That because Jesus came, all those who are hungry and thirsty now can be filled. Amen? Now, I don't know about you, but think about this. Poor in spirit, desperate, begging, mourning and crying out and weeping and wailing. Meek, being gentle in spirit, okay, but that's fine. But then you have hunger and thirst. That doesn't like, look like any of this stuff for me is stuff that I'm looking forward to, does it? It seems like all this stuff are just, I don't want none of that stuff, right? I'd rather not mourn. I'd rather not to be hungry. I'd rather not to be thirsty. I'd rather, you know, not to be poor in the spirit. I'd rather everything to be good. But this is not what makes you in a good position with God. It's when you're in a desperate position. That's when you're in a good place with God. Amen? Amen? So with that, I just want you to like... Even for our church, in so many ways, it's a blessing that, like, we're small in numbers. Like, when you have a church that is large in number and nobody's getting, we're, we're not seeing anybody getting saved. And there's other big churches that doesn't see anybody getting saved. But when you have a big church and you're not seeing anybody getting saved, it doesn't matter to you. Sometimes it doesn't matter because you have a big budget, you have a big staff, you have a thousand people attending. Yeah, you're not seeing anybody getting saved, but you're not desperate because, because yeah, you have a thousand people at your church. You're not... You know, things are good, right? 
But honestly, in a way, if I have to pastor a church that doesn't see anybody getting saved, I'd rather pastor a desperate church that's not seeing anybody getting saved than a, a comfortable church that is okay with not, but not seeing anybody getting saved. Amen? So with that, I'm just saying that God works different. God's economy is different than ours. When you're desperate for God, when everything is going so wrong to the point that you're so broken, that's exactly where you need to be so God can show up and do a mighty work. Amen? Amen. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. We've seen that idea that if you forgive, you will be forgiven a couple of times as well throughout the scripture. In, in, in the Lord's Prayer, we see this, forgive us as we forgive those. That's in Matthew 6, verse uh, 12. We also seen that in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who will not be merciful. You guys are with me? So the idea here is um, you will be forgiven if you forgive. You will be shown mercy when you are merciful. That's common in the scripture. However, I want you to read this. I'm going to read this for you verbatim because this is like the best description of what does that mean. Um, this commentator put it this way, and it's just phenomenal. This quid pro quo Ethic sh uh, should not be should be taken seriously, but not legalistically. Think about that. I read it again. This quid pro quo ethic should be taken seriously, but not legalistically. It is not like God is sitting down with a piece of paper and check when you forgive. Then He check one of your sins off. It doesn't. It's not legalistically this way, but it's extremely serious. Those who are genuinely forgiven can't help it but to forgive. Amen? So it's not like God is catching up with you with a piece of paper to make sure that every time you forgive a sin, he check a sin for you as well. But because you have tasted and have seen the forgiveness of God, you can't help it but to forgive. That's the idea of, of that un, unmerciful servant. Remember that parable that Jesus said when the master forgave his servant with, with tons of debt, and then that servant went out and he got his fellow servant and he sent him to prison for a tiny debt. And, the, and, and Jesus said that master was so mad with the servant because he has forgiven him so much debt yet he will not forgive his fellow servant and sometimes we can be like that right jesus has forgiven us so much but we can't forgive people for small things that they do against us amen but jesus said blessed are those who are merciful because they will be shown mercy number seven blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god they will see god pure in heart it means to be ceremonially pure, like from a Levitical point of view, you are clean. You're not messing with the filth of sin. But it also means that you conduct your life ethically in a pure manner. That you live your life with, with no corrupt desire, with you, no sin or guilt or filth or shame of sin. You try to live your life in a pure way. And Jesus said, if you live your life this way, all your happiness because you will see God. You will see God experientially in your life with him, but you're also going to see God when you go to heaven one day. This is the way a Christian should conduct his life. Amen? In a pure manner. Amen? Number, I think that's number seven. I apologize. Blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called children of God. Just the same way when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, uh, because they will, uh, what did he say? Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. It's the same idea here that 
In the same way Jesus conducted himself, we should conduct ourselves in the same manner here. God is the ultimate peacemaker, right? He came down from heaven to make peace with his own enemies. Anybody knows who that is? Us, right? Because we sinned against God, but Jesus sent his son to make peace with us. And he is our peace. Paul said that in Ephesians chapter uh, 2. Now, Jesus said, blessed all the happiness of those who are peacemakers, who, those who conduct themselves in the same manner like their heavenly father, who is the ultimate peacemaker. Amen? Now, last one, verse 10, the last beatitude. This is important, so let's focus on it for a little bit. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, right? Now, because of righteousness is extremely important. Don't go out, rob a bank, and then you go to jail and say, hey, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not being persecuted. You're not being persecuted because of righteousness. You're being punished because you did something wrong. You guys are with me? So Jesus said, blessed, this, this only applies when you're getting persecuted because of righteousness. You have done nothing wrong. You love Jesus. You're trying to help other people, yet you get persecuted anyways because you're a Christian. In that scenario, in that case, all the happiness of those who are being persecuted because of righteousness. Amen? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. The same idea, Jesus is elaborating in it, on it more. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kind of evil things about you. I don't know about you, none of this seems fun to me. Does, it, does any of that seem fun to you? When you're being insulted, somebody just curse you out and persecute you and falsely make all this random stuff about you that didn't even happen. It's just crazy. But look at this. Because of who? Because of who? Me, Jesus said, because of me. Now, this phrase right here, these three words, because of me, is an insane claim that Jesus has just made about himself. In the Old Testament, or in, the, in, in anywhere, in any culture, whom are we being persecuted for? Like, who's the person that we are being persecuted on his behalf? Have you ever been persecuted on behalf of another prophet? Or could we ever be persecuted in behalf of another human being? The answer is no. We are only being persecuted. We are only being insulted on behalf of God. It's because we follow God and the, the world doesn't like God. Then the world comes after us and persecute us. You guys are with me? In the book of Psalms, the psalmist say, God, it's because of you we are suffering so much. We are like, you know, all the nations are jumping on our shoulders and just riding us. That's in the book of Psalms. So being persecuted is the idea here is you are being persecuted on behalf of God because you are following God because of God you're facing persecution but Jesus here said what you are being persecuted because of me so in an essence Jesus here is making himself equal with God just as the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted because of God so are you gonna be persecuted because of me right and Jesus explained that even more. And he said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about that. Jesus is saying, 
just as the prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted for God because of God in the exact same manner you will be persecuted as my disciples because of me. That is a claim of divinity right here. Jesus is putting himself on the bar with God. Just in the same way that those who followed God in the Old Testament face persecution, Jesus is saying, you who follow me will face persecution in the same manner. Amen? Not a, amen? amen? All right. We're almost done. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said. The word be glad is actually in Greek means leap with joy. Think about that. Have you ever seen one of these commercials or a movie or something where somebody proposed to somebody or somebody get um, um, passed the exam and they jump up and down because so they're so excited they passed the exam or they got engaged or anything like that and you can see the excitement and they're jumping up and down. That's exactly what Jesus said we should behave when when we get insulted, when we get persecuted, when people say all kind of evil things about us, we should be not just rejoicing and glad, but we should jump up and down, leap up with excitement because we have been persecuted for the sake of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's amazing. A couple of scriptures here. We see that throughout the early church in the, in the, in the Bible. Acts 5.41 after the disciples have been in the Sanhedrin and they have been persecuted. Look at this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. That's amazing. They, they beat them up and they leave so happy. It's like we don't even deserve to be beaten up and insulted for the sake of the name of Jesus. Amen? James 1 to 2. Consider it all that sorrow that's what james said right consider it all bad situations my brethren does it say that what does it say consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter when you encounter various trials when you go through hard time you consider that joy Hebrews 10, 34, we've seen this before, how the author of Hebrews told his readers, you have suffered along those who are in prison and uh, grudgingly, sadly, accepted the confiscation of your property, right? Doesn't say that. Joyfully, happily accepted the conf confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had a better and lasting positions. Philippians 1, 29, this is the last one. And this is one of my favorite verses. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Think about that. Faith was given to you as a gift from God, right? Eternal life is a gift from God. And here Paul is saying that not just faith and eternal life was given you as a gift, but suffering, pain, and persecution is given to you as a gift from God. A gift. A gift. Amen? Amen? All right. So the eight Beatitudes will continue the Sermon on the Mount next week. But let's close our eyes and pray.